I'd like you to keep your Bibles open, if you would, to chapter 16. I'm not going to read it here at the start, but we'll be referring to it as we go through the list of individuals who are named here at the end of this letter. And let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, for the truth that it contains, for the things that we can learn from it, for the examples of those who have gone before us in the faith and what we can learn from their lives and the way that they use their gifts to serve you. And this is an example of the church in Rome, a group of believers who were faithful, honoring you, and were wanting to make a difference in their world for Jesus Christ, just like we do. And I pray that you would encourage us today and teach us through your word. Amen. I wonder how many of you as a child... Uh, learn the particular kind of hand gesture where you put your hands together and you go, this is the church and this is the steeple and open the doors and see all the people. I know when I was a kid that was one of the things that were being taught. And I thought about that this week with VBS and the things that we are teaching our children. And in that particular hand gesture about opening the church to see all the people, there was a message there, a lesson to be taught. That the church isn't just a building. You know, we refer to a church as a building and sometimes we think of it that way, but the church is much more than that. In fact, the most important thing about a church is the people. A church is made up of people who love God and who love one another and who are called to serve Him in the community where He has placed us. And in Romans chapter 16, what I believe Paul is doing is, in a sense, he is opening the doors of the church And he is letting us see the people who were part of that church at Rome. It is an inside look at the believers that made up this congregation. And when we think about church, you know, in Rome, you know, I know a lot of times it's easy for us to think of our gatherings of a large church, but these were probably churches, house churches that were meeting in different parts of the city of Rome as believers came together. And so we kind of can have that picture in mind when you think about Paul writing to the church at Rome, he's really writing to these brothers and sisters who are in different parts of the city who have come into faith in Jesus Christ. And he is writing to encourage them. It is a fascinating list. I mean, there's 26 people here. At least nine of them are women. That's significant in terms of how women were involved in the church and in ministry. Very early on in Christianity, we see that. Skeptics have looked at this list and they've argued that, oh, Paul couldn't possibly have known that many people in Rome. I mean, he had never been there. Uh, This list of people must have been from Ephesus where Paul had spent a much longer period of time. But no, that's not true. This is a list of believers who are in Rome. And the historians love this list because it tells us something about the people who made up the church and how Christianity was beginning to spread and penetrate different parts of the city and the areas. And so there's a lot of information here that we're going to try and draw out today as we go through this list. And one of the biggest surprises that comes out of the 1st and 2nd century historically is just how widely people travel. I mean, we tend to think that we're the people that travel and like to go places and see things, but they were just like us. And Roman peace and Roman roads and Roman ships made possible travel on a wider scale than it had ever been before. 
And so there were people going back and forth. And there were connections between these various churches that were being established even in the first century. So what can we learn from a passage like this that applies to us or will be an encouragement to us? Well, I'd like to make three observations from the text this morning. Number one, the church is a new community united by love. One of the things that we are going to see as we make our way through this list of people this morning is just how affectionately Paul describes them and how much he loved them and how much they loved one another. Let's take a look. He begins the list by introducing this woman named Phoebe. And he says, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. Now here is Phoebe, this woman who has come now uh, to Rome, and he calls her a sister. It's a reminder that we are a family in the body of Christ. And very early on you see these believers calling one another brothers and sisters in Christ. It's how we should feel about one another in the church, that we are connected by our love for one another in the body of Christ. And so here you have Phoebe who is introduced. She is a servant of the church in Centuria. Now the word servant could be in a normal use, just someone who serves in the church, but because of its connection to the phrase she is of the church in Centuria, um, it's the very same word that is used for a deacon or a deaconess. We believe that Phoebe may have served in this kind of office of a deaconess in the church at Centuria. Now remember that Paul is writing from Corinth. That's where this letter is written. Centuria was the port city for Corinth. It was about six miles from Corinth. And so now you have a house church that's meeting in Corinth where Paul is. You have a house church in Centuria. And they are joining together to send this letter to Rome. And Phoebe is most likely the woman who is carrying this letter to the believers in Rome. And she has come now to the church there. And Paul says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. He's saying, I want you to receive her warmly. Show her Christian hospitality. Take her in and help her on her way as well. Do you sense the partnership that is to be here between churches as they work together? And she was serving this particular role in ministry as one who was bringing a word of encouragement from Paul to the church in Rome. The next people that are mentioned on the list are Priscilla and Aquila. They are a married couple who are actively involved in the church and we see them show up in other places in the scripture as we learn about the early church. What's interesting about this couple and what's kind of unusual is that uh, Priscilla is the one who is mentioned first, the woman. And it may have been that she was the one with the stronger gifts perhaps, we don't know, maybe she was Uh, a very effective teacher in her ministry. But what we do know about them is they were tent makers by trade, just like the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. And they are teachers, and they are church planters. And whether they were in Ephesus or now when they are in Rome, there is a church that's meeting in their house. They must have had some means because of their occupation so that they had enough room for people to uh, to meet there but they opened up their home for other believers to gather. 
You can do that. You can be a church planner in our community. Or you could have a neighborhood Bible study and have people over into your house. And that's what they were doing. And then we also know about them that they were once helping Paul in his ministry. Some years prior to this, the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jewish Christians from Rome because there was a dispute that was going on in the Jewish sector in Rome over a man named Crestus, that is Christ. And so he expelled them from the city. And when that happened, they went to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they began to teach. And they prepared the soil for Paul when he came. And when Paul came, they took Paul into their home. When a man named Apollos came to the city of Ephesus, and Apollos was an eloquent speaker, and he was talking about Jesus Christ, they detected that there were some things that Apollos did not know yet about Jesus. And so rather than correct him publicly, they invited Apollos into their home, and they taught him the way of God more accurately, the Scripture says. They were a gracious couple. They were servants of the Lord being used wherever God placed them. They were going to be involved in helping the church to grow. And now they are back in Rome. There's one other note about them too. Paul says that they risked their lives for me. He doesn't mention exactly where that occurred, but most likely that took place in Ephesus. When you remember there was a riot in the city because this preaching of the Gospel was hurting the, the uh, tradesmen that were building these idols of Artemis and wanting to have this be this attraction in the city and people were getting rid of their false gods. And there was a riot and people wanted to put Paul to death. It may have been there that they risked their lives for Paul to rescue him from that situation. What an amazing couple that are mentioned here. Paul goes on in the list and he says, Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Do you hear how Paul speaks about him as my dear friend? He doesn't tell us a lot about this man other than that he was the very first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. And remember, Asia here is not China, it's not the Far East. Asia here is Asia Minor, or what would be modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was in Asia. And Paul is saying about this man that he was the very first Christian. He was the first of Asia's gifts to Christ is literally how Paul says that. I think that's a beautiful phrase. He was the first of these gifts that would come to Christ in the province of Asia. I mean, this week we had 20-some gifts, if you will, from Lindstrom and Chisago Lakes in our area that were gifts to Christ out of those that he was calling to himself. That's how tenderly Paul described this believer. And I think about that too, how, you know, when you've been involved in ministry, how you never forget that first person that you had the opportunity to lead to Jesus Christ. I remember being a student at Moorhead State University and I had contacted a student named Jay Fisher. And I wanted to meet with him and a friend of mine and we were going to sit down and talk with him and we had set a time to meet and he didn't come. He didn't show up. And so I, I gave him a call and caught him in his dorm room. And he was there and he said, oh yeah, I forgot. I want to meet. And so he came on over and he met with us. And as 
We talked that day about spiritual things. He told us that his grandfather had brought him to a Christian men's breakfast. And at that breakfast, he had heard a speaker and he had heard the gospel presented, but he didn't trust in Christ that morning. He had questions about it. And so when we met that day, we explained the gospel to him again and more clearly and answered some of the questions that he had. And that day, he prayed to receive Christ as his Savior and Lord. And what a joy it was to see him go on and grow in his faith. And what Paul's doing here is he's saying, you, just, you never forget those kind of early opportunities that you had to lead someone to Christ. Paul mentions Mary. He doesn't tell us a lot about her other than that she worked very hard for you. She was probably one of those women who works in the background of the church, kind of behind the scenes and faithful, those kind of ministries of service that often go unnoticed but so important to the health of a church. And she loved the Lord and she was using her gifts in that way to serve this church in Rome. He mentions Adronicus and Junius my relatives who have been in prison with me. Now, the name of Junius is the most controversial name in the list. It's not controversial because this person did anything wrong, but there is some debate about whether or not this is a man or a woman. And some of the earlier um, commentators would say that it's a man. They thought it was short for Junianus. But in more recent days, there are those who believe that this was a woman. And I think the case for it being a feminine name, Junia, is very strong. In fact, it is quite likely that Adronicus and Junia are husband and wife, that they are another married couple in this list. Paul calls them my relatives, which means they are my kinsmen. They are fellow Jews. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were cousins of his or something like that because he will refer to others in this list also as kinsmen. They were in prison with me. He doesn't say where. Might have been in Philippi. We just don't know. But they too had suffered for their faith in Christ. And he says that they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. They came to believe in Christ before Paul did. And so they must have heard this message about Jesus very early on. In what sense are they apostles? Well, there are two ways that the word apostle is used. In the narrow definition of an apostle, it is someone who knew Christ, who had witnessed His ministry firsthand, and who was commissioned as this messenger of Jesus Christ. But the term apostle was also used in a wider definition that came to be made uh, came to refer to those who were messengers, who would take the gospel to those who hadn't heard or who we might call missionaries. And so Andronicus and Junius are a husband and wife who are apostles in this broader sense of messengers or missionaries. And here they are now in Rome, serving Christ in that community to see others come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Paul goes on in his list to mention other names, sometimes difficult for me to pronounce as well, Ampliatus. He says, Whom I love in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker. Stachus, my dear friend. Again, terms of affection and endearment. Do you hear Paul's heart and how he describes each of these people whom he has this connection with, this relationship, and he knows their name? 
I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like to be sitting in church that day when this letter is read publicly for the very first time and it comes to the end of this beautiful letter and you are named? You know, imagine that. I mean, that Paul would know me. That Paul would include me and greet me in that letter. Had to be a high honor indeed. It was a risk for Paul to name names. I mean, every pastor faces that. Every time you name names and give thanks to some for their work, you're kind of afraid you're going to forget somebody or leave somebody else out. Sometimes pastors are criticized for that, but I think it's important to do. You know, we've had a great week of Vacation Bible School, and there were a number of people involved in that ministry. And all the way down from those who plan and lead to those who work as crew leaders, every single person is important on that to make it a success. But it takes those who step forward and lead in that. And I'm glad that Paul took the risk here. And he named these people because it tells us something about the church there. And I think one of the questions that is appropriate for us to even think about in our own life is, you know, if we were part of that church, would Paul have named us? In our church, would Paul have named us? as those who work hard in the Lord, as those who are faithful and who gave themselves wholeheartedly to the work of Christ in that community. What an honor. What an honor indeed. He goes on and he mentions Apelles in verse 10. And he says of Apelles that he was tested and approved. I mean, that's about the highest honor that you could say of anyone. We don't know the circumstances in which Apelles was tested. He may have been persecuted or threatened or lost his job because of his faith in Christ or been an outcast or something, but he was tested and he stood firm in his faith in Jesus Christ. He was approved. What higher honor can you have than for those of us who know Jesus Christ to be able to stand the test in our own life and to come through and be refined and approved and one day stand before Jesus with that kind of recognition. Here was a man who was faithful in his ministry to Christ. And Paul goes on and he mentions two households. He says, Greet the household of Aristobulus. And that is a very interesting name. In fact, it was Ironside who first pointed out, or one of them who pointed out that Aristobulus is quite likely the grandson of Herod the Great. And part of the reason for that connection is that the person mentioned next is Herodian, my relative, or another kinsman, another Jew who worked in that household and who has come to faith in Christ. I mean, can you imagine this? You think of Herod the Great who was so awful and so ruthless in the way that he ruled and now the Gospel is penetrating the household of Herod. And there are believers who live there and work there, probably among those that are still slaves or maybe freed men. But the Gospel is taking root in different parts of the culture. He mentions also the household of Narcissus who was a very famous person in Rome. Narcissus was a wealthy freedman of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And if this is the same Narcissus who is mentioned there, now there are believers even in the Roman court. 
coming from all different walks of life as the gospel is going out in greater and greater circles. That's exactly what we want. In every community, we want the gospel of Christ to penetrate all areas of our community, from government to our schools to our businesses to our neighborhoods to those acquaintances that all of us have, that the gospel might be faithfully preached and that people might come to know Him as Savior and Lord. He mentions two women here. He mentions Trophina and Trophosa, probably sisters, very likely twins. It was common at that time when you had twins to give them names that came from the same root or background, just like somebody might name twins Gene or Joan or something like that. Their names mean literally dainty and delicate. And so you can picture in your mind two young women that are very fair and attractive in this way as dainty and delicate. And yet what does he say about them? He says they work hard in the Lord. They are giving themselves fully. They are laboring in the Lord. In quite in contrast to the delicacy of their name. He goes on in the list and there are others that are mentioned. I'm skipping to verse 13. He mentions Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And his mother, who has been a mother to me. That's an interesting note. Who is Rufus and who is his mother? Well, we believe that Rufus here is the son of Simon of Cyrene. And Do you remember who Simon of Cyrene was? He was the man who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus Christ when he was on his way to Calvary. He was the one who was pressed into service. And Simon witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and he heard and he saw those horrible things that happened on that day. But he saw something different in this man Jesus and the way that he died. And his sons became believers. Rufus and Alexander are brothers and they are mentioned in Mark's Gospel in Mark 15.21. Mark's Gospel was written in Rome. Mark's Gospel is really Peter's Gospel. Mark was the author, but the stories or the source came from Peter. And so these believers, as he's writing to them, would know who Rufus is. They'd know who Alexander is. And they would make the connections of what happened in this family. And Simon's wife, the mother of Rufus, became like a mother to Paul. We don't know the story. Wouldn't that be fascinating to know more of the details? I mean, here she was. She was a woman. I, I bet Paul was on her prayer list. I bet she prayed for Paul every day. What we do know about her is that she treated him and cared for him like she cared for her own son. Have you had someone like that in your life who was like a second mother to you who loved you and cared for you? I know I was blessed in that way by a neighbor, a woman uh, who was on the farm next to our farm who put me... She told me that. She said, I've got you on my prayer list along with all my kids and my grandkids. And she was like a second mother to me and prayed for me. And I think of that. That's what was going on here. And you can sense again the affection and the love and the concern that they have for one another. He goes on later, and I'm going to skip over those other names, but in verse 16 he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was their custom to do that in the churches and their gatherings, to warmly greet one another. Not a sexual kiss, but a holy kiss. 
And they came together in the same way that we in our services. We have a time of greeting and there's a warm handshake or if you haven't seen somebody for a while, there may be a hug or a greeting like that. We are family in the body of Christ. We are united by our love for one another. And we see that picture there and that is to be true in us as well. And it is no wonder that even their enemies would say of the early believers, you see how they love one another. They were a new community who came together.